This is a very strange episode for me to comment on. Before I really talk about this episode proper, I have to discuss... Well, I mean, you all know what's coming. The Dominion War arc, right? Now, <laughs> I, this, I have to bring this up because... I don't know about you guys, but I always kind of assumed that the war itself was a fairly long-term affair, right? Well, you know, long conflict. But at the same time, I have to admit, part of that's because I assumed the war started back in Season 3. And yet a formal declaration of war won't happen until, well, later than now. It's not even happened yet, as of this point. And I find that interesting, because that's never how that sits in my memory. Which brings me to the Klingon conflict. The actual war between the Klingons and the Federation lasts one episode. This episode. That's it. Prior to now, there was occasional convoys and occasional missions, but for the most part, it was there was no real fighting between both sides. Um, you know, if, with the exception of like the occasional skirmishing with regards to again defending convoys, like what happened with the Worf. Otherwise, this is the first time the Klingons have actively been attacking Federation ships, and we see some of the side effects and consequences of that. And there's a lot of little notes, which are great, by the way, and it's something that DS9 excels at. And I feel like they took some of those lessons and took them to heart. Jake looking down at the people and the, the pace of how they move or the discussion about how many people were injured and how many people are going to be needed from this situation or that because of this ship getting these things. You know, there's a lot of background flavor that helps immensely add to the feeling of being involved in an active conflict, a real war. But it only lasts one episode. Which brings me to the funny thing. So they wanted to end the Klingon conflict, which basically, according to all the developers and creators and writers, like, everyone says the same thing. They all say this was in an unintentional side story that they had to graft onto the main story, basically because, you know, of the whole problem with Way of the Warrior, which I discussed a season ago at this point. So I find that funny in its own right, because it's like, all right, and escalate, and we're done. <laughs> But what I find interesting as well is they wanted to get... Some people say, like again, everyone says they wanted to get back to what they really wanted to work on. Uh, some of the people said they wanted to go back to work on the Cardassians and the Bajorans. Some people said they really wanted to get back to work on Deep Space Nine itself and really focusing on the station. Some people said they really wanted to focus on the Dominion conflict. I find that interesting considering how much the show is still going to kind of meander throughout topics as it goes throughout the rest of the thing, even as we kind of try to refocus things back towards the Dominion. Lord knows the end of Season 4 certainly has had several episodes dedicated towards it continuing to flesh out and develop the Dominion. Three I can think of off, right off the top of my head with uh, To the Death, uh, The Quickening, and uh, the one where Oda was it made human. I, it was this last episode, I can't remember the name of it right now. You know... That being said, I do think they managed to weave the Klingon. God, I don't. I, I really hate to call it a war. I they they weave the Klingon incident into the overarching arc of the Dominion actually quite neatly, and the usage of Martok was rather ingenious in its own right, which is doubly funny because apparently that wasn't the original intent. <laughs> Telling you, backloaded storytelling. Funny fact though. How many of you remember me mentioning Wei Yun will be back? And I hate to keep pointing that out, because it is a spoiler, but it's important to, to comment on, because it's so interesting. Because the only reason it happened is they really liked Jeffrey Combs' presentation of Wei Yun. He was one of their favorite Vorta. Arguably the Vorta. So Hertzler, who has actually played Martok before, and a couple other roles, and is now playing Martok in this episode, everyone loved him so much, they just had to bring him back. 
<sighs> Pity they killed him. Anyways, so... Uh, let's see, I'm looking at my notes here. You know, Odo has a wonderful little scene where he's lamenting the status of his existence, and yet at the same time being caught in a degree of wonderment over the bubbling. And then Sisko says, well, I need you on this mission. And Odo says, no, what you, what you need is someone who can change himself into Gowron's favorite pet, Targ. And Sisko says, no, I need you. So get your ass in gear, let's go. Doesn't say it quite like that. Now, we, we find out that the plan is to infiltrate and notably not assassinate. I, I have to just take a moment of an aside. Whether you like this or not, I, I'm not giving my opinion, because I don't care, but I find it wonderfully Federation that they wouldn't condone an assassination mission even if this was something that was considered acceptable. Like it is here. You know, assassinating Garon? Mm. Assassinating a changeling impersonating Garon? Yes! So obviously it's such a logical thing to do, and yet the Federation still says, no assassination. I find that very interesting, because it makes perfect sense for the Federation. Number one, they're not really the assassinating type, and, you know, moral superiority, etc. But number two, the Federation's policy is usually not to get involved in other people's internal affairs, only to try and make sure that they are internal affairs. This actually came up back in Redemption over in TNG. So, exposing the external influence, we'll let the Klingons sort that out at that point. It is a nice way and a, and a good way to showcase the Federation's policies on this one, and it makes a degree of sense. It's just, if I'm being 100% blunt, there probably should have been a plan B to assassinate, which is kind of what's handed to them by Martok. But anyways, so, I do find myself very much wondering... How much do you think the changelings, the, fo the founders, had a hand in Starfleet's plan? We know with total certainty that they have infiltrated the Federation as, as, as closely as Earth itself, actually. So you can't tell me that there aren't Federation personnel who are changelings. So I really find myself wondering how many of them are involved in making sure these plans happen. Considering that a certain section hasn't even been introduced into the story yet, it, it adds for some interesting theory crafting as far as the behind the scenes. But anywho, so then there's this bit. I actually want to comment on that. I'm going to leave it like a note here. I'm going to put my pen on that line so I remember it because I want to come back to that. But then there's this bit where Ducat shows up, basically as a cameo, but he's like, "Oh, I don't know what's worse—that you're going on the suicide mission or that you are pregnant." My goodness. I must say, I want to congratulate First Minister Shakar. Oh, it's not his, it's O'Brien's. And Ducat doesn't say anything else, he's just... I always got the impression she did actually explain later. You know, because when they come out, she's, he's like, okay, well, you know, at the very least, this condition prevents you from going on this suicide mission. Ducat is actually very well presented in this episode, as well as Damar, and frankly, Worf actually has a really good hand in this episode as well. It's. I have to comment on something, though. I hate to call myself an expert because it sounds bragging. So all I'm going to say is that I have a passing familiarity with Klingon culture. Yes, that's an inside joke. Some of you will get that. And as a consequence, I, <laughs> I've talked about this so many times before. Klingon culture is all about reactions. It, it, you know, external honor fake honor, and reactions and how you react to things. And so Worf tries to give lessons on how to behave Klingon. What I find strange about that scene is how they just, other than Cisco, they just don't seem to get it. 
Odo can't bring himself to manage this. O'Brien is, is failing miserably, and Cisco can just barely keep up. And Cisco is still making mistakes. I myself have actually pointed out the difference between the backhand and the, and the forward thrust, and Worf calls it out straight. The backhand is an insult. In other words, I'm, I'm t calling you dishonorable, or I'm basically just insulting you with physical action, thereby fight to the death, right? Worf himself has strategically used that several times when dealing with Klingon politics over on TNG. So, that, that's, that's good. I like that. I also like the, uh, you know, the way he's like, okay, you need to, we need to push you and you need to push back and you will not, why are you standing over there simpering away from me? Is it just my smell? And O'Brien's just like, uh, 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 can't quite keep, get onto it. It's actually funny that they manage to blend in as well as they do when they actually get to the Klingon frat party? I mean, what else do you call that? Actually, can I make a quick aside about the frat party? Or the, you know, the, the, the endurance test? First of all, it makes perfect sense they would do that kind of a thing. That is extremely Klingon. You have to party. Eat, drink, sing, dance, chat, and boast of your, your glory and your conflict for a full day and a half, basically, before you finally get inducted in. Not everyone's going to be able to endure that, literally have the physical endurance to do that. And if you are seen as not drinking as much or eating as much, then you are seen as weak and you shouldn't be there. Or if you can't endure it after having you know, imbibed, then you shouldn't be there. And the entire thing is a constant cavalcade of proving how worthy you are of being here. All of it is, is, is focusing on the external honor perspective, again. You know, showcasing, you know, this is why I'm important. It's, I mean, to use a weird human equivalent, it would be kind of like saying, okay, let me use a weird parallel. How many of you have ever been into a doctor's office and they have, like, their, their PhD and their dissertation and their diploma and whatever just strategically laid out throughout the room? It's the same general concept. This is my proof that I am worthy of the honor and respect and therefore of the position and entitlement that that gives me. Entitlement's the wrong word, but you know, the, the things that I am entitled to have as a consequence of that position, you know, the, the rewards and benefits of privilege and position. It's just a wonderful way they present it. I'm sorry, I, I absolutely gush over Klingon culture. I, I would love to sit down with Ronald D. Moore someday and just talk Klingon sometime, because I think that would be a really fascinating conversation. But anyways, I digress. So, as they're going through this thing, there's this bit where... They're, they're talking about all this blood wine they're having, and I'm just sitting here thinking, and I'm actually in the middle of writing on my notes, you know, I really think that they should have some kind of anti-getting-drunk vaccine. I mean, they have super medical tech, right? So obviously they have some kind of medical technology c capable enough of making it so that they could not get drunk, right? Like, ten seconds later, they make the comment, thank goodness we have the anti-intoxidant serum, and I, I, just, I just started laughing. I just scratched out the note and just... Made a little star there. Anytime I make a star, it's for something I'll remember to just share with you guys. Anywho, let's talk about Garak really quick. Actually, no. Let's talk about Nana Visitor and Alexander Siddig. Because the two of them have a scene that was thrown in for the fans. Because the fans who are following the series, you know, like those of us and the meshes groups and whatnot, like I mentioned, or those hitting the convention, <coughs> convention scenes, <coughs> reading the magazines, knew that that was Alan Alexander Siddig's baby. So, of course, Kira says, this is your fault, you know. And they give some delightful banter between the two of them, which feels rather natural and, frankly, romantic. You could tell that the two actors were just kind of having fun with the scene until they basically slid back into character for the last part. 
That's it. I, I don't have anything else to say about that. It was just a, a smile-worthy scene, and I'm glad that they introduced it into it. Anyways, Dukat. So first, Dukat is, as ever, his usual self. You know, charismatic, polite, considerate, and then the moment something gives him cause to, instantly and without hesitation destroys the other Klingon ship. Now, what I like best about that is his reasoning was not couched within malice, or at least, I'm sorry, I should rephrase that. I don't think his reasoning was couched in malice. As with so much about Dukat, we can all infer and, and speculate as much as we will, especially since the writers and the actor, and in some cases the directors, disagreed on each other, with each other with regards to Dukat. So, what do you think? I don't think there's any malice there. There was probably some screw Klingons underneath it, but that wouldn't be enough motive by itself, not enough impetus. Instead, it was pure pragmatism. I had to trust between Mr. Worf's ability to lie or my weapons. And yeah, between those two, I'd go with the weapons too. <clears throat> but that's only if I was in Dukat's position. I know Worf can lie, and I can know he can lie very well. He's done it on TNG. <laughs> Excuse me. What the hell? Hmm, excuse me. So it's not like I personally don't have faith in Worf's lying. But in the universe, I can kind of see why they would take that perspective. Then DeMar comes up and says, I would just attack from orbit. Full spread, torpedoes, blah, blah, blah. Now, what I like about that is this is actually probably the first characterization we have for DeMar. And that's important. Because he's a recurring character, you know, in total contrast to what I kept joking about in previous seasons. He will be back. You know, spoilers. So what we see in Damar is he is blunt, brutal, but he only sees the surface level. He sees this as an easy equation. Just go in, start bombarding, shooting the torpedoes, and then get the hell out. And when questioned on it, his response is to approach it from a moralistic perspective. Oh, you just don't want to kill innocent lives. It is O'Brien who has to point out... That would never work. You would maybe get one torpedo off before the automatic defense systems or the shields grid would happen. You would be blown out of the sky, and the, the kind of firepower you could level would not be enough to get through the shield's planet side. You would accomplish nothing. Because Damar was only thinking on surface level. He was thinking, okay, attack, move. And that's important. Keep that in mind for Damar's characterization. So then... So as obviously the hollow changer is, is broken, so it's like, well, okay. The hollow filter. This leads to Dukat's second thing. Once again, minus malice. Instead, it goes back to what Dukat is honestly really good at. Pragmatism. Listen, uh, we're going to beam you down. All your records are in place. I have done everything that I can in order to ensure my end of the bargain has been kept. Absolutely. Uh, the thing is, I'm leaving as soon as you go. And Cisco's like, well, that's not, that was not our bargain. I know, I'm aware of that. But uh, we don't have a hollow filter, so we're out. And he's right. Legitimately, he is right. Now, at the same time, it is also worth noting that he is also wrong. There is an enormous wealth of value in, some, in basically having a backup plan. Having a bird in orbit that can be called upon if things go badly, which, funnily enough, they do. Now, things did work out anyways, but I bring that point up because Dukat, for all his pragmatism, is mostly focusing on, let's call it second tier. He's not going fully in-depth. He's obviously thinking in more depth than Damar was, but he still isn't thinking of the full nuance of the situation. He's trying to look at things as if they are base math, and life is more complicated than base math. 
That's actually one of the flaws of Ducat's leadership style. He is good at calculus, cold calculus, and basically nothing else. Anyways, so he says we're going to bail. If you succeed, you succeed, and we're good. The war's over. And if you fail... So, they go down. They party. Party. Pizza party. And Martok shows up. Question. When do you think Martok realized it was them? Obviously, we aren't told. I'll tell you my opinion, of course. I think Martok knew immediately. I think he either knew because he knew the mission was coming, because I think the changelings were involved in making this mission happen to begin with. But even if we are to ignore that as a possibility, I think the second he saw Odo, he knew. Just bam. Oh, yep, Odo. Yep, okay. Understand what's going on. Reveals Cisco, foiling the plan, since after all, their plan was not to kill, was it? It was to set up the field. This is my one and only piece of evidence, really, other than past episodes, that the Changelings were involved in the plan. Because his action of revealing Sisko only really makes sense if he wants to remove from them the op opportunity to reveal the Changeling. If they did that, they would reveal Gowron is just a Klingon, like I said last time. But if he tries to f accuse them and then gives them the option to kill Gowron, well... And he could see how the assassination mission now comes to fruition anyways. So that's my take on that. I also love how Martok acts all friendly and sympathetic, offers them to boon. You kill Gowron. What do you think their plan was here? Because I could think actually two plans here, personally. So they put this idea into Odo's head. They arrange for the mission on Starfleet's side. They have Martok ready to go to push it into a certain direction, of basically to ensure that this becomes an assassination mission. This now has only, really, two possible object, uh, alter, uh, two possible endpoints, although really technically three. So, first endpoint, it's entirely possible that Gowron would have been killed. And, well, based on what we see, that is true. Worf does win the fight. Of course he freaking does. It's Worf. I know we all make fun of the Worf effect, but let's be honest, the Worf effect is more of a meme than a fact. Worf would beat the crap out of Garon in a fight, and he does. <laughs> so, Garon killed. Well, now Garon doesn't turn into goop because he's not a changeling. So, in the face of this assassination of the Chancellor of, of the Klingon Empire on behalf of Starfleet, or on behalf of a traitor, take your pick, because both could be spun that way, we now have basically a formula for total war. Actual, real, no really. For those of you not aware of my, uh, my terminology, let me make this very clear. You know, there's, there's like, you know, Cold War, border skirmishing, and conflict. Then you get to war, and then above war is total war. Total war is when the whole of the focus of the nation or the power or whatever is dedicated towards destroying, defeating, or crushing the other. It's actually a semi-rare occurrence for good reason, because it's extremely damaging to the group doing it as well as the group it being done to. Total War is a bad thing for a reason. Not the franchise, of course. <laughs> it just, just clicked with me there. So this would have been a formula for Total War. Total War Klingon, oh, I'd play the hell out of that, where the Klingons would never ever seek peace again with the Federation, not for generations at the earliest. And the two sides would probably ground each other to dust in the conflict, because they're the two major powers in the quadrants. Who, quadrants. Or, Gowron successfully kills Worf. Having done so, having now exposed 
the assassination plot, he is now being pushed by Klingon politics in order to accept a total war scenario. The third option I mentioned is if they both die, but really that's just the same as if Gowron died. Total war. No matter what happens, the Dominion wins. The only way they could have fallen is if Martok gave himself away. It's the one and only thing he does wrong. Well, that's not true. He actually did one thing wrong back in Way of the Warrior too. but it's the only thing he does wrong in this episode. I don't understand. Why aren't they shooting at him? And Oda says, well, the same reason the guards aren't getting interfered. That's not how a Klingon works in general, but especially in terms of Klingon politics. This came up, if you'll remember, back in Redemption. Uh, with uh, Gowron was challenged by Bob, I don't know who it was, and Worf is like, what are you doing fighting each other? We need to focus on fighting the Duras. Now, at the time, Worf didn't fully understand Klingon politics, but Odo does. After all, he is very observant. He is a damned good security officer, after all. So, the detective looks at the situation and says, well, of course they're not getting involved. Because that's how Klingon politics works. Why don't you know that, Martok? And then he exposes him, and everything works out. I do like how Oda was pulled aside as a consequence of all this, by the way. It's just amusing to me in its own right. The one and only thing I don't like about this episode is Martok really drops the ball at the end there. He, he comes across as desperate, actually. And I don't... I don't know. I don't quite buy that. Given the ludicrous amount of intelligence gathering that the, the founders have access to, given how ex expertly they are able to replace people over long periods of time without anyone even suspecting, he just completely drops the ball here, and I really don't know why. The best guess I got is that the sight of Odo literally offended him so much that he literally lost control of himself. That, that's the best I've got. Anyway, so Gowron... <sighs> This is a weird segue. I like Gowron's robe. No, no joking. Like, if I could somehow go into the past and grab that robe and buy it and, and wear it, I would totally do that. It's, it's an awesome robe. Um, Gowron's a good politician. I've talked about this many times. He's a fascinating Klingon because he's probably the best Klingon politician we've ever seen. The catch is, of course, he's, well... He is, he's still flawed. He's not, super, he's not a Palpatine, right? He's not always scheming and always ahead of the steps. Rather, Gowron is better at being a reactive politician. The moment a situation is presented to him, he can adapt to it like that. But he doesn't tend to plan ahead much. It has to be Odo and Sisko that really lay things out for him as he realizes this really could be a moment for the Klingon of the Federation to pull back and for us to go ahead and move forward in cooperation against the Dominion. Okay. And then the moment he's introduced to the idea, he's with it. That's very Gowron. It's just he didn't think of it in his own right. It's, it's funny because when I was a kid, I usually called Gowron stupid, but I didn't mean that he was unintelligent, more that he just didn't figure out things on his own. He's the kind of leader who's really good at manipulating his own people in his own office, but he needs actually intelligent people to be his advisors to really guide him forward. And I think the, the absence of that is one of the biggest flaws in Gowron's policies. But we'll talk about that more in the future, because that's going to come up again. Regardless, this was a good episode. I did, nevertheless, enjoy this quite a bit. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts, and I'll see you next time, guys. I guess I should do this one today. Kapla!